0: God's good, amen? Amen. And I know a number of you were here for the first service and uh, have been introduced to Mark Scott already. Maybe there's some here that uh, haven't uh, been introduced to him yet. Mark Scott and his wife Carla are our guests today, and Mark is preaching for us as we kick this series off on the subject of pain and suffering in this world. And uh, Mark is a professor at Ozark Christian College. Uh, he served 28 years there as a professor, and then for three years he went away and uh, was preaching in a church in Colorado, and the, the college was able to lure him to come back and uh, be that professor that teaches young boys how to preach. So uh, let me pray. We are, we're thrilled to have Mark here today, and he's going to be preaching to us on this subject of pain and suffering And uh, let's give this to God, okay? God, thank you for your presence. And thank you for Mark. And just use him again this hour as he opens the word of God to us. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Well, I have one question as we begin this second hour. What is for breakfast next week? Boy, I may transfer my membership here or something. That was so good. It was just delicious, and I want to thank all of you who worked so hard to make that. If I'd have known we were eating breakfast in between services, I would have cut back on that bowl of cereal this morning a little bit, but uh, it's just been grand to be with you today, and I thank you. As Kevin mentioned, we are talking about suffering, and just sort of surveying the territory a little bit. Uh, in light of the sermon series that is upcoming, my wife reminded me, I probably should tell you about something that one of our grandkids said. We have four children, as mentioned in the early service. We have ten grandchildren. That just about wipes you out at Christmas, you understand. But uh, anyway, you talk about suffering. But anyway... Uh, our little, our little granddaughter Kaylee, who's our second son, Corey's daughter, uh, they were praying around the table one night at their evening meal, and she, I don't know how old she was, I guess somewhere in the four-ish range or something like that, and uh, four or five, and she said uh, when they were praying for the people who were being persecuted for Christ around the world and going through great suffering. And uh, anyway, she, after the prayer, she said, Dad, I'm suffering too. She's four or five, you know, <laughs> what could she possibly be going through? And uh, so Corey said, well, what, 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 what do you, how are you suffering? What he, she said, I'm suffering right now. Anyway, that was her response. You know, she just thought this is it right here. It sort of reminds me of something else. One of our grandsons said, now you'd have to know Bentley. Uh, he is a piece of work for sure. This boy just uh, was headed off to kindergarten this year. And uh, so when they had the interview with the teacher, Uh, The teacher came to our daughter, Annie, and said, well, he's very bright. He talks a lot, doesn't he? he, Yes, he does. Yes, he really does. He really works it. And anyway, when he was probably about three, pretty articulate since he was little, uh, he was being troubled by a bug, and he just didn't like this bug buzzing around, and Annie, Michael said, well, what's so bad about that? And he says, because it's like death in a hole of forgotten dreams. How does a three-year-old kid come up with stuff like that? It's like death in a hole of forgotten dreams. Well, that's sort of like suffering, I suppose. It's like death in a hole of forgotten dreams. Last hour, we talked about the who of suffering, that it's good to know that God is there suffering alongside of us. But the other side that I want to talk about, again, not the why so much today as we open this up, but more the when. Because it's only a matter of time. If you haven't been suffering, you will. If you have been, you'll get through it, and then you'll suffer again. It's just a matter of timing and when. And what about it when you know it's coming? How do you hang on in the midst of that? That's why I'd like to develop this hour. I told you today that we we're going to kind of go with this biographically. So in the first hour, we talked about Job in the Old Testament. I want to stay in that testament this morning. In the second hour, I want to talk about the prophet Habakkuk. Because his book provides us an opportunity to jump inside of a prophet's prayer closet and see the musings of his mind as he wrestles, knowing that suffering is coming. How do you hang on in the midst of the wind? In John Ortberg's little book that he talks about faith and doubt, that's the title, Faith and Doubt, he quotes a preacher by the name of Frederick Dale Bruner, kind of a theologian, and Bruner said that the Christian faith is always bipolar. He's right. It's always bipolar. Isn't it true for you? We advance in our faith, and then difficulties come and we retreat. We progress and go forward and then trials come in our lives and we take five steps back. The Christian life is always bipolar, going forward, backing off. That's the way it is. And Ortberg says in that book that disciples, people that follow Jesus, are not people who never doubt. We have our doubts. We have our dark nights of the soul when suffering comes. He said disciples, they doubt and they worship. They doubt and they serve. They doubt and help other people with their doubts. They doubt and wait until one day their doubt will turn into seeing and their faith will turn into sight. Yeah, we really are. And it was another theologian by the name of Frederick Beekner who said it this way, that doubt, or hanging in there, when sufferings come, doubts, he said, are kind of the ants in the pants of the Christian experience. Well, if that's true, then good old prophet Habakkuk had a lot of ants in his pants. Because he was really struggling as he faced the reality that suffering is going to come. How do I handle that? John Ortberg says that the most important word in his book title is the middle one. And it's not faith or doubt. It's faith and doubt. They really do go together as we anticipate the coming of trial, the coming of suffering. And so I take you to this very small minor prophet. While we were away in Colorado, I did have the chance to teach twice, once for our church and once for a church in Colorado Springs, what I called the Gospel in Minor Key. Kind of a 13-week study where we went through the minor prophets of the Old Testament, looking for the glimpses of Christ. Found a little textbook by a guy named Salvaggio who said, the prophets speak of him. And it was a delightful study to just walk through this. And once again, I was enamored with Habakkuk. I would have to be honest with you, this is not one of those books that you, in your Bible, turn to first. My pages are not real well worn on this new ESV Bible I'm using nowadays with regard to Habakkuk. Matthew, Mark, much more underlined, much more used. But the prophet Habakkuk, I I tried to think, when was the first time that I really got my uh, thoughts turned to Habakkuk? And I think it was in junior high. My dad was serving not very far from here at the time. It's Carla's hometown, First Christian Church in Lamar, Missouri. And every Sunday, Habakkuk was rent, was talked about at the church. But I didn't know it at the time. The choir would come out from backstage, you know, and they'd be seated over here in the choir loft area of that church. And every Sunday at First Christian Church in Lamar, the church started the same way. The choir would sing. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Keep silence Keep silence, keep silence before him. I didn't know that was in the Bible. That's in Habakkuk. That's chapter 2, verse 20. I thought it was the plot of the choir to shut the youth group up on the back row. It's in the Bible. Wow. That was my first acquaintance with this book. And, and then my next acquaintance was I, uh, I uh, decided I'd read this wonderful book that's brought revival through the church. I guess I was in high school by this point. I was reading the book of Romans. And I was studying this book of Romans, and I get to chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for the just shall live by faith. Paul took that one little remark and built the entire book of Romans on it, and I looked in my little cross-references, and it said Habakkuk two four. In Romans, he's quoting Habakkuk? And then in 1983, we came the first time to teach at Ozark Christian College, and one of my assignments was to teach freshmen the book of Acts. And so we're getting into that second semester, and I'm translating this from my Greek Bible and looking away at Paul's synagogue address at Antioch of Pisidia, his standard. This is what you punch the button, and he would have spit this out every time he went into a synagogue. And he got down to the end of it, and when I was Young, in my preaching days, I was taught by Dr. Wayne Shaw. When you are preaching and you get down toward the end, you want to be warm and passionate and appeal to people. And so he says, you sound the wooing note. He took that from James F. Stewart in Scotland. Sound the wooing note when you get done with your message. I didn't know what a woo was in those days. But that'd be like you guys getting on one knee and looking up longingly into her eyes and saying, will you marry me? That's a woo if you didn't know. That's a woo. Okay. And she says those two wonderful words, "eat dirt." But anyway, I, I, so, <laughs> you, 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 get down on one knee. That's a woo. So Dr. Shaw said, "Here's how you you sound the wooing note." I guess Paul never had that course <laughs> because he gets to the end of Acts 13, typical synagogue address. Behold, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm accomplishing a work in your day you will never believe. That's it. <laughs> That's a little abrasive. And I looked in my cross-references in Acts 13, and it said Habakkuk 1.5. Huh. And then I kind of got interested in sort of the literary grandeur. I was kind of a math and science major in high school. Now I don't do any of that stuff, but I sure got interested in words as the years ticked off. And, and I got interested in reading this little book of Habakkuk, and I wanted to see the rich figures of speech. Here, here, try this one on for size. Chapter 2, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. As the waters cover the sea? For the earth will be filled. Well, that's not what comes into my house every night at 5.30. And it doesn't matter whether it's ABC, NBC, CBS, or CNN version. The message is not. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. No, how, how, how do you deal with life when it comes crashing in on you? How does that work? How, how can you have that kind of faith? So I got interested in these rich figures of speech. I looked through this little book of Habakkuk, and you know what I noticed? 43 metaphors in three chapters. 43. This is literary grandeur, even among this prayer closet person, Habakkuk. So I kind of got interested in this. And I began to work at it, and I began to notice that something was happening. Habakkuk is a narrative prophet. It's much like the book of Jonah. And he was a contemporary of of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. And his job, somewhere in the 600 B.C. range, was to get God's people ready for Babylonian captivity. In other words, suffering is coming. How do we prepare them to go into exile? God's people are always coming out of exile, says Tom Wright. How do you get people ready to go into exile? And know that suffering is coming, so I began to work at this book, and I kind of came up with a little structure for it. So I'm going to give you my outline to these three short, short chapters in just a real simple way. Can I do that? Here would be my outline to the book of Habakkuk. Point one: Hello. Okay, that's point one. Point two: Nah. Point three: Say what? Point four: Chill. Point five. Whoa, dude. I don't think I've ever used dude in a sermon before, but anyway, that's kind of my outline. Because as Habakkuk gets ready for the coming judgment, suffering when is the topic, his first response is, hello? Isn't that how we feel when we suffer? Hello? Hey, are you paying attention up there? See, Habakkuk, his day and age was filled with idolatry and immorality and violence and greed. Does it remind you of any culture you know about? And the sand is And you just say, Lord, are you paying attention here? We have troubles here. So I'm looking. I'll just give you sample verses. Chapter 1, I hope you found Habakkuk by now. I gave you quite a while. So Habakkuk. You made to use your table of contents, didn't you? No, come on. So get, turn on your devices or your phones or so, Get there. Chapter 1, verse 4. So the law, the Torah, is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. You ever feel that way? You see, Habakkuk is having a problem with the seeming inactivity of God. God, if you're there, would you make some noise? Because we're struggling about all the suffering that's going on around us and the bigger suffering of judgment of Babylon to come. Hello? Are you paying attention? Does justice ever seem like it's perverted to you? So one of our guys in our church in Denver, well, he violated his parole. He shouldn't have done it. He knew it, but he did. And he got thrown in the slammer. And he's in prison for two years for violating parole. He didn't call in. Now the offense, the original offense, was serious. I'm not making light of that. But I'd go down, down to Denver, and I would go to the Denver Detention Center, and I would talk with him over video conference, and I sat in a courtroom all day long waiting for his court case to come up. Finally came up way late after I had to leave. And here's other guys coming in. One fella pulled a gun on some children at a bouncy house, and he gets his hand slapped. And our church member over here is being sent away because he didn't call in? Seriously? Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to be critical of our government. I'd rather go to a court here than in a lot of countries I can think of. But by the same token, don't you ever want to say, are you paying attention here? Uh, I I mean, really, you know, we crossed the little state line to come up here. And even though I was born in Kansas, I... I don't know all what about the politics of your state, but having lived in Missouri for those twenty-eight years before we went to Colorado, where Rocky Mountain High is no longer just a song. (laughs) Hello. Uh, We have sixty thousand gambling addicts in the state of Missouri. That's more. I noticed the tornado. Our population's down five thousand when we left. 10 days after the tornado, 55,000. That's what the sign says. Now it's 50,000 some. See, some people just walk away. They didn't didn't rebuild. They just left. That's 60,000 gambling addicts. They had to pass a law in Jefferson City to limit how much you could gamble at the tables because you know why? Homes were being wrecked by that. And guess who picks up the tab? See, if it ever occurs to us that we're the government, it'll be a major revelation for us. And so... God, are you paying attention? Second worst city in America for crime was 300 miles from my front door down in Joplin, St. Louis, Missouri. Are you pay- God, are you paying attention to what's going on in Missouri? How about Colorado? Oh, they won't come across state lines to get this drug. <clears throat> the people who live in Utah are coming. But anyway, uh, that's a whole other... I'm just saying... Sometimes you want to say, hello? What about the suffering going on? Hello? And then God speaks to the prophet. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 6, all the way to verse 12, verse 11, rather. And what God says is, Nah, uh It's not what you think. You think I'm not paying attention. I am paying attention. And he even tells us in verse 6 of chapter 1, For behold, this is God speaking to the prophet, I am raising up the... The, the, well my version says the Chaldeans, maybe yours says the Babylonians, oh my goodness. That bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Now Habakkuk has another problem when it comes to suffering. His first problem was, if you're there, would you make some noise? He's struggling with the inactivity or the seeming inactivity of God. Now what's he wrestling with? The activity of God. You, you, you're going to bring Who? The Babylonians, I mean God, Israel may be wicked, <laughs> but those people, now come on, you ever feel that way? Say, well, okay, I, I know God, I've sinned, I know, that's probably why, I mean, you're going to be talking in the next few weeks about Joseph and how that sometimes our sin is a result of our own inact- our own bad choices, sometimes it's a result of other people's, like his brother's bad choices, sure, sure, but uh, how you wrestle with the Still, isn't there something in you that rises up and says, well, I may be bad, but I mean, my neighbor, I mean, he flips dandelions into my yard. I mean, he he is bad. The Babylonians were wicked, wicked people. You'll see that in chapter 2 of Habakkuk. But it would be like God saying to the people in Missouri, 60,000 gambling addicts, the second worst crime rate in America is St. Louis all kinds of difficulties jasper county i was told had the highest number of divorces that's where the bible college is it's like god said i'm going to fix those missouri people i'm going to send them the taliban here's the deal call me naive i'm 61 years old i've been chasing jesus for 52 years i've never had a problem believing that God existed. I'm really serious. I've had some huge intellectual questions, especially with the Old Testament. Axe heads floating on water. How long did it take to make the earth? Uh, A man swallowed by a fish. I've had a lot of questions about this book. The one I can't get away from is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when he says all the rest of it's true, then that's what I go with. See, and Judge Castile wrote a book called Beyond Reasonable Doubt, and he would tell you this, who sat the bench for I don't know how many years. If the collaborative witness, the eyewitness testimony came into my courtroom that we have of Jesus Christ's resurrection, I can only conclude one or two things. Jesus Christ is alive. And if he talks about Job, and he talks about Adam and Eve, and he talks about Noah and Jonah as if these people really existed, then I'm going to go with that. And that kind of solves that. But that's not to say this. I've never doubted that God existed. That's not been a struggle for me. Here's what's been the struggle. Why he does, when he does it, that's a hard thing. His methods and when the suffering comes. Now that's what Habakkuk is wrestling with. So the first stage is hello. The second stage is nuh-uh. God says, I've got this. I've got this. So when he tells him he's going to use Babylon, then what does Habakkuk say? Beginning with verse 12 of chapter 1, down to chapter 2, verse 1, his statement is to say, what? You're going to use whom? And we read it in verse 12, verse 13 rather. He says, you who are of pure eyes, you have pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? In other words, Habakkuk's saying, God, suffering's going to come, and it's going to come by the hand of the Babylonians. I don't understand your ways. In the midst of this suffering, I don't get this. What's going on? I read, I, I read quite a bit, actually, for this weekend. The, 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 the message this morning, or in the first hour, to tell you the truth, I, I read through three books just to kind of get ready for that. And one of them quoted the Jewish uh, Rabbi Elie Vaiso, Eli Vaiso. Eli Vaiso. says... That the only kind of faith worth having is the faith that's been wounded. Maybe if your faith hasn't been wounded, maybe it can't be genuine. Jesus talks like when trials comes, when trials come, uh, James, his brother, James, his brother says, when you encounter trials, count it all joy. So here you have it here, how are you going to punish us with somebody more wicked than us? And God has to say to the prophet, beginning with chapter 2, verse 2, all the way to the end, verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silent before him. This is God we're talking about, he's the creator, as we said first hour, he can do what he wants, and so the next part of this pilgrimage is God saying to the prophet in his prayer closet, just chill. Just chill. I I won't take the time to read through chapter 2 to you today. But today when you go home, it would be good to read the book of Job. It would be good to read the chapter 2. Because you will see almost every one of the Ten Commandments in chapter 2 are broken by the Babylonians. Five times you will see in chapter 2, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, Babylonians. God is going to take them out. God is going to do something with them. But sometimes the ways of God. I've been at this long enough to know this the truth of Isaiah 55 my ways are not his ways my thoughts are not his thoughts have you ever said this God I would have done that so differently and that's what disqualifies you from being God what a strange way to send a king I would have had him come in a limo. Not by way of donkey and manger scene. See, we just don't have the big picture. We don't have the bigger perspective. And so God has to say to Habakkuk, you just chill. Which brings him to finally see the plan of God. To see that when suffering comes, God is going to use suffering to purify the remnant. You better praise God he did because you wouldn't be sitting here this morning if that wasn't true. You see, what you have to ask all the way through your studies of the Old Testament is this question. Where is the promise? What's happening to the promise? Is the promise being furthered? Is the promise being compromised? Where's the promise? The promise here is that we're going to purify the remnant of God's people so that Jesus can come and can save the world. If we don't get Jesus here, we got big, big problems. So Habakkuk in chapter 3 begins to see this, and he says in chapter 3, verse 2, O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, yes, Babylonian is coming. In wrath, remember mercy. He begins to see the big picture, so I think he said something like, 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 whoa, dude. He's rather overwhelmed, and the language of chapter 3 reminds one of the coming out of Egypt, because God's people are always coming out of exile, and it reminds one of also the, the issue of the Babylonian captivity, and the renewal at the time of the conquest with Joshua, when God's people were victorious, and finally you come down to my text. Now that was all introduction, now I'm ready to start the sermon. 316. Take your Bible one of these days as a devotional exercise, and look up all the 316s. You know more of them than you think you do. God in His providence, though He didn't put the chapter and verse divisions in there, it worked out. So I'll read chapter 3, verse 16. The prophet says, I hear. That was one of the most famous words in the Hebrew language Shema, O Israel. You shall love the Lord your God with everything. To hear and to heed and obey, even when you don't understand. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Did you know Elvis made the Bible? You know what that Hebrew word tremble means? That's the Hebrew word dagaz. And it means to quiver and to shake. It literally means I'm all shook up. (laughs) That's what this word means. Uh, what did he hear? He heard that suffering was coming. He heard that judgment was coming. And he said, my heart, you you know that's how it is. You hear bad word from some place and all of a sudden you have a pit in your stomach. Somebody said that body and soul live so close to each other they catch each other's diseases. It affects us physically when we hear news in other, and that's, I heard and my heart trembled. My heart pounded. I was all shook up. It's kind of an interesting word. We could see it in several other places where this idea of agitation, deep agitation. Uh, the people of Israel use it in Exodus 15 when the Pharaoh and his armies are drowned in the sea. And in fact, an interesting use of this word is when King Saul kind of goes AWOL later in his life and he goes to the witch of Endor and asks for Samuel to be brought back from the dead and Samuel says, when he actually shows up, why did you dagaz me? Why did you agitate me? Why did you make me tremble and come back? So he's wrestling with, I know that suffering is coming, but what's the next word in verse 16? My legs tremble beneath me. Yet. That's what I came to tell this second service today. Yet. If I can just find me a few more Bible college students that will pray, yet. If I can find me a few more church people that got the guts in the midst of their suffering to pray yet. Now we will get somewhere then. Yet I will wait patiently. Oh, that's one of your better qualities, isn't it? Patience? <laughs> no, we're like that little boy. I want patience I want it right now. Bob Russell, you saw his picture on the video clip this a while ago. Bob Russell said he was out east in this country, kind of where more of our rich heritage is. And he saw a sign that said, antiques while you wait. we're not very patient about much of nothing I will wait patiently for the day of trouble to come on the people invading us yet I think I would say to you today that when suffering comes learn to pray yet learn to pray yet he goes on to say in verse 17 I think it's one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible it's got six lines three couplets Though the fig tree should not blossom. Well, I never even saw one of those. I grew up in Iowa. We had corn and beans. Okay? I had to go to South America, down to Santiago, Chile, to see my first fig tree. And there be no fruit on the vines. Well, we've never grown any grapes. We have tried to grow some garden before. And produce, no, the, uh, the produce of the olive fail. I don't even much like olives all that well. Just a week ago or so, I guess at the start of school, we saw a good friend of ours, Andy Schroeder, and Andy's from my home church in Iowa. When he was just a little tyke, his mom had set out a relish tray for company, <laughs> and he got to the relish tray before he sucked all the pimento out of one of those olives, put him back on the tray. People came, well, these are kind of different. Anyway, so I don't much even care about olives. And the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Hey, listen, I grew up in town. I I had to kind of, I worked on the farm. I know a little bit about verse 17, but not a lot. But people in the Midwest, at least we can kind of get at this. We, even if we grew up in town, we kind of figured it. Except upon greater study, I noticed something about those six lines. Do you know where else you find them? In Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Can I tell you this? Every one of them is a term of the covenant. Do you know what that means? That means that what Habakkuk has come to, in recognizing the suffering that's coming, he's come to a pretty big, immature conclusion. And here's the conclusion. God, even if you stripped away every one of the things that you promised, what's the next word? Yet. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer, and He makes me tread on the high places. Okay, here's the deal with suffering. If we'll get our arms around the who of suffering, we'll be helped. If we are able to pray yet in the midst of when we suffer, we'll make it. I'm just looking for a few more church people that can pray yet. Now, to tell you the truth, we don't have a fig tree. We're renting a place and building a house in Webb City. We hope to grow a little bit of garden, but probably it'll just be raised beds because I'm old. It's a long way down to my shoes. Um, I don't, we, we probably won't have any pets or cattle in our third garage. or. Mm. See, I live on this side of the cross. I live in the new covenant, don't you? Aren't you glad? We sang a song, about I, I'm free to run. You wouldn't have that if we didn't live in the new covenant. Forget that. But Galatians five says, For for freedom Christ has set you free. So we'd have to change verse 17, wouldn't we? What do you want to substitute? Though my kids disappoint me. We have four children, I told you. We have ten grandchildren. Do you understand, with those numbers, the risk of having a prodigal is fairly high. I had an elder in our church in Illinois. Had four kids just like us. Three of them were angels, one was a demon. They were raised in the same family. How's this happen? I don't know. I don't know. You can jump through all the John Trent and Gary Smalley and James Dobson hoops you want to, and that's no guarantee your kids will turn out just perfect. Not in this world. So, though my children disappoint me, sometimes they can. Ours have been, boy, by the grace of God, they've been wonderful kids. <laughs> I read, used to, we used to have a little pamphlet we put out for married students, non-traditional students at the college. And uh, well, there was a story about a little boy from Louisiana, kind of may think about this. In a few weeks, they got to go down to Baton Rouge, and they're forcing us to go to an LSU game. But anyway, um, so we, we, we would be there. And so I've been thinking about this little boy down Louisiana, and he was kind of a mischievous little boy named Harry. And they had a family outhouse right out by the bayou where he caught the school bus each day. <laughs> and so he was just feeling a little mischievous that morning. And before he left for school, school bus, but he just kind of kicked over the outhouse, went on to school, came home, his dad, dad it said, Harry, come here. Where you left for school days, you turn over the outhouse. Oh man, he knew he was had. He said, yes, I did, Dad, just like George Washington and the cherry tree. I cannot tell a lie. Yes. His dad started taking off his belt. Well, come here. He said, Dad, what are you going to do? I'm going to whip you. George Washington's father didn't whip him when he chopped down the cherry tree. He said George Washington's father wasn't in the cherry tree when he chopped it down either. (laughs) Sometimes your kids disappoint you. How about this one? Though my spouse angers me. (laughs) Kevin mentioned, we've been married for 41 years. How do you be married for 41 years and not have a disagreement or two? We've kind of fallen in love, Carl and I, with a little statement that John and Nancy Ortberg have a little refrigerator magnet. It says this, I didn't say it was your fault. I said I'm going to blame you. (laughs) Um, Though my boss frustrates me. Though my friends betray me. Jesus didn't know anything about that, did he? I'm asking you what you'd put in verse 17 this morning. Though, though, though. Here's what I'm asking. When suffering comes, in the midst of all the those of life, do you have the guts to pray yet? So you thought this was a sermon from Habakkuk? Well, hardy har har. It's really straight out of the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba let this cup pass yet right not what I will you resolve to do the will of God in the midst of your suffering because you are with clenched teeth hanging on to yet yet I will rejoice in God my Savior the Lord God is my, He makes me my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go to the heights. So when I was in California a while back, a year ago, October, I guess, I ran into William Lee. William was a former student, church planter. He was in the military. I'm not a military person. I don't know all the right language. Some of you who have are veterans, you'll, you'll forgive me if I say the wrong word here but he said in his group, battalion, soldiers, I don't know what the right word. He said, uh, we had a statement It went like this. The test of a good soldier is what it takes to stop him. Well, what's it take to stop you? Some suffering? Well, I'm not, I'm not denigrating your suffering. That's real. Let's deal honestly with that in the next weeks, okay? We're not saying there isn't suffering. We're asking... In the midst of the wind, can you hang on with clenched teeth by praying yet? So our church in Denver, I won't talk long because if I do, I'll cry. They're stabilizing, doing better these days, but we were there during a firestorm. But someone for me who helped me keep my head on straight, feeling like I had failed there. There's just no other word for it. I failed. Our four years in our student ministry at Granby, Missouri, were wonderful. (laughs) Our seven years in Illinois were terrific. Our 28 years at Ozark Christian College were joy unspeakable. I was a 41-year-old veteran in ministry, and I felt like I was a rookie. I'd never faced these problems before. I guess it was a matter of just when, wasn't it? The question is, would Mark Scott have the guts to say, Yet! And you know who helped me? is a man who was one of our elders, who you don't have the time to hear of all his physical challenges. He is the most health-compromised person I've ever met in my life. His name is Rick Bauer. And in addition to all of the health compromise, this man should not be alive. On New Year's Eve at the Marriott Hotel, just a little ways from our place, something went haywire with the system in the hotel. None of the keys would work. Computers shut down. And this is a night when people are drinking to get inebriated pretty good. And a guy was hitting on another gal, and one guy told him to quit, and that fellow who was rather inebriated went to take a swing at that guy. He ducked and hit Rick Bowers' son, Matthew, who fell back and hit his head with a life-affecting injury and disabled him in a minute. They're in process of moving from Denver to North Carolina so they can get Matthew in the right kind of facility for the rest of his life. But if Rick Bowers walked in here right now and if he came up to this pulpit because he's learned how to pray yet, do you know what he'd say? This is what he'd say. You ready? Buckle up. I'm going to say it and then we to pray. Here's what he'd say. Oh, Brother Mark, it's all good. It's all good. Oh, God, we don't come to that kind of faith easily. Not in this stained planet. We pray you'd give us the courage to when suffering comes like Habakkuk to pray yet in the midst of all the those of life. I thank you for in my life placing Rick Bowers who when I wanted to throw in the towel and quit, with much greater difficulty in life, would just say, it's all good. It's all good. That Babylon would come and your people would be hauled off to captivity. Seventy years later, they'd go home and four hundred years later, there'd be a baby's cry heard in a Bethlehem stable kings would come from the east and fall down and worship him and present gold gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh he'd die on a cross to get back the world that rightfully belongs to him so this wind thing God this wind of suffering does have a destination we thank you someday there'll be no more death or pain or mourning for the old order of things has passed away. And we long to hear those words, oh Lord. We might need a little bit of them today. Behold, I make all things new. We thank you in Jesus' name.